Perhaps corporate Australia, you gutless lot will wake up. The typical Australian no longer seems to me, says Douglas Murray, to be that striding, sensible, happy-go-lucky figure of old. Immigration has a much bigger impact on Australia than The Voice hypothetically will. And the truth is, is that while The Voice is a hypothetical, mass immigration is changing Australia now. We may well end up in a situation where certain aspects of our culture they adopt and certain aspects of their culture we ended up adopting. And that's been the nature of immigration for time immemorial. So I think what we've got here is a, is a massive cultural problem. And I don't think there's a cultural, uh, a political solution to a cultural problem. You actually wouldn't want to go out at night in downtown Auckland because of fear of being robbed or mucked or shot or stabbed. G'day and welcome to Parting Shots, the weekly podcast with me, Fred Paul, and my fellow ADHTV host, Nick Cater. Nick, how are you? I'm well, Fred, very well. Nick, you recently acquired the nickname of the Blade Runner here at ADHTV for your sterling reporting of the way giant windmill blades are transported around Australia. And uh, listeners, you can find alarming footage of that, amusing footage even, uh, if you just have a look at our YouTube account. But one of the most astonishing stories this week, Nick, is of another type of Blade Runner, English commentator Lawrence Fox, who spent a night in the slammer for posting a podcast that praised the work of the so-called Blade Runners in London. Now, Nick, how do the Blade Runners in London differ from you? And did Lawrence Fox deserve to spend... Any time in the slammer. Uh, well, I think we're united. By the way, we should explain what the the um, the cameras are. They're un- ultra low emission zone cameras on certain parts of London where you 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 need to pay. I think it's twelve pound fifty. That's right. Yeah. And uh, these cameras take pictures of of. Uh, but of it's number it's, plates. And and the, ca- the the Blade Runners are the people who dismantle it. Exactly. Them. And yep. there's a lot of them. They're very active. I, I was just reading here. There've been five hundred and ten. ULES cameras have been stolen or vandalised wow. between April and the end of August. And there's there's pictures on this story I'm looking at. Of, <laughs> basically, they go in with a, I guess it must be an angle grinder and just fell the things, yeah. just chop them down, which is, uh, you say, we are uniting the common cause, of course, which is climate change, balmy madness stuff. You know, I mean, they're, they're, in this case, it's going to all this trouble and expense and the policing involved is massive now to keep... Mm. Policemen are guarding these things. Yeah, so the ULES cameras are, uh, that's what they're called, the ULES cameras are installed to, um, to record number plates of cars driving into central London and if your car isn't a low emission car, you are automatically uh, docked £12.50, which is, you know, so these are some of these people are just parents driving their kids to school and so on. But you see, you've got a case here where obviously this is what the message they should be taking, the police and the, and the, and the politicians, is this is a, such a deeply impossible, you know, unpopular move. It does not have social licence, as they call it. Right? That's right. People don't want yeah. it and you, can't, yeah. you cannot impose laws unless people want them in a, in a democracy. So I think they should think again about the laws, not lock up Lawrence Fox, who all he did was just sort of suggest that people go around and... Well, yes. I mean, Lawrence. Bent their spleen on these cameras. (laughs) Well, Lawrence was doubly famous this week because he. You and I should be careful what we say on this, by the way, because we are both going to London shortly. You know, you don't want to be arrested at Heathrow on suspicion of making, (laughs) (laughs) encouraging vandalism to loot you. So I would say, anybody listening, we don't advise. Yeah. Damaging and, and if, ULES cameras. And if any Bobbies are listening, actually, we're not coming to London. We're going to stay. Uh, we're going to yeah. stay in Australia for the time being. And, and if we do come to London, we'll contribute to the policeman's <laughs> Christmas picnic ball. fund. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so no need to worry. We're good. But just good just guys. to elaborate on what happened to Lawrence Fox this week, and we will return to uh, him later in the podcast. He uh, earlier in the week made a disparaging, uh, slightly lewd remark about another uh, British commentator on GB News. Uh, all hell broke loose. He lost his job at GB News. And um, at the same time, he appeared on a subsequently appeared on a podcast uh, saying that he intended to join the Blade Runners and go out and vandalize some of these ULES cameras. And the next thing he knows, six coppers turned up at his apartment to arrest him. And they actually walked, they, they went out, they took out with um, 
his kids' mobile devices. I mean, this is clearly a politically inspired in act of intimidation by uh, by the London Constabulary, and it happened as Lawrence actually um, uh, streamlined, uh, 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 sorry, live streamed mm. um, while the arrest was going on, and he made the very uh, um, pertinent point that uh, was only recently that a 15-year-old girl was stabbed to death in broad daylight in London. London has an increasingly... Uh, frightening knife attack problem and yet six six coppers have to turn up to his place to arrest him but like i said we will return to that later because i interviewed uh lawrence earlier in the year and it's interesting that we were talking about the same things back then only now the difference is that uh when you talk about them there's a chance you might get knocked up but uh, locked up i should say (laughs) (laughs) yeah who knows what happens in prisons these days anyway let's um but let's go to our first grab nick and it's from uh, the Alan Jones Show on Tuesday. Alan perfectly encapsulates the debate du jour, which is the voice to parliament, uh, as well as corporate sycophancy, the paganism of the environment movement, and the frightening observation that all this is destroying the prosperity that Australia has until now taken for granted. Let's have a listen. What about this Woodside crowd? and their multi-billion dollar Scarborough gas project. (laughs) You see, sucking up to the government and tipping millions of dollars into the S-vote has got them nowhere. The chairman of Woodside is the Qantas man, Richard Goida, and they're tipping into the S-vote as well. Well, the board said they supported the voice. And now a traditional owner has gone to the federal court to say that Woodside Energy and its multi-billion dollar Scarborough gas project I might add about 400 kilometres off West Australia's northwest coast, has unbelievably been given the boot in the federal court because a so-called traditional owner has said she hadn't been consulted over the impact of Woodside's seismic testing and that the testing, she argued, would disrupt the song lines of the whales. Well, just imagine if the voice gets a look in. Nick, you're our resident greenie. Do, do whales have song lines? I think the songs, well, they do communicate using um, uh, sort of sub-sonar kind of stuff and because um, there is very strong evidence now, um, actually thanks to the work of Michael Schellenberger in, uh, is sponsoring this work in the States. There, there is evidence where you can clearly show empirically that whales tend to beach in larger quantities, larger numbers, when there's the activity of offshore wind going on. For a lot of reasons, one is construction. You know, there's extra ships going through, and um, and and the other is just the apparently the, these turbines let off some ultra, you know, some sound noise that you and I could not possibly hear. Well, you probably could. I think what no. I think surfers <laughs> surfers are attuned to this too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But uh, we have our song people. lines too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I look the whale bit. I get. Look, I, I, but um, there has to be sign that there's going to be real damage, and and I don't think that the or the, well that the the damage offsets any benefits. Now, I don't think in the case of gas right now, when you've got countries that are desperate for gas because Russia's turning it off, and um, and they want to keep the power on and keep old ladies warm in the winter, I don't think there's any justification. Oh, well, it has to be a big justification to stop it going ahead. Uh, and this isn't it. The, but the other side, of course, is this uh, uh, rather sort of expansive interpretation of the law by federal court judges, including Morty Bromberg. Oh, who, is who, Morty Bromberg uh, behind this oh, one? Yes, he 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 ruled in the case, in the controversial case that basically said because they hadn't consulted one particular uh, Tiwi Islander, I think, who came forward very late in the game. Uh, they consult. It's been been a lot of time consulting Aboriginals, but they haven't consulted this one Tiwi Islander about this thing four hundred kilometres offshore. Then they uh, the process was was flawed and they couldn't go ahead. The ho- this is a real problem. I'm going to be looking at it uh, pretty soon in in my Monday column for the Australian because it's 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 another example of judicial activism. Well, really. you do you do bring a lot of common sense to this debate, Nick. So I'm looking forward to that piece. But I had to I smiled when I when I heard Alan laugh at Woodside because <laughs> Woodside's been pumping all this money into the 
into the yes case to hopefully suck up to the federal government. And it's, it's a it's, federal court that's got, that's kicked them out of the Scarborough well, that's gas That's right. Field. It's it's Turkey's voting for Christmas, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's, it's gay rights campaigners supporting Palestine. It's one of those sort of things, isn't it? It you is, know, yeah. It's... Yeah. it's um, it is. It is. There is some Schadenfreude about it, but yeah. I mean, look. I think the question of Fred: Do you think that this is going to backfire in these companies? I mean, like it's clearly backfiring on Qantas, right? They've gone overboard with the yes case and you know naming, putting the names of um, you know. I, I think I told you when I flew to Melbourne recently from Perth, almost missed the flight because it didn't say Melbourne on the destination board. It said Wurundjeri country. Oh, you, you know, so they've gone totally overboard. It's, they, they, they say that educating people about, this is in their official document, educating people about uh, about the traditional owners is going to be part of the customer experience from now on. But people have, back, have, have rejected this. So, so they've gone, Qantas has gone in, in the space of a year from the seventh most trusted company in the country to the 40th. Wow. <laughs> Losing that... people's bags is part of that. But I think, <laughs> yeah. I do think that people are just sick and tired of this. And quote. the most complained about. Yeah, exactly. If, uh, you know, if they really did believe in uh, in the traditional ownership of this country, they'd use um, ancient art, ancient Aboriginal uh, aerodynamics for their, uh, for their planes to get <laughs> off the ground and back <laughs> on it again. So, but you wrote a book, Nick, uh, some years ago called The Lucky Culture which described, among other things, the transition of the Labor Party into the inner-city Green Woke Party, which began with uh, with Gough Whitlam back in 1967. The modern, Labor Party ha- uh, it, the, the modern Labor Party is far more woke now. Do you think, did you think it would ever get this bad? Um, I, I guess that you could see the trend, couldn't you, because it started in a small way and it gradually got worse and worse. I mean, Bob Hawke... Um, came out against the Gordon on Franklin Dam and won to win inner city Melbourne and Sydney votes but lost four seats in in Tasmania where the workers weren't going to have their jobs. So you could see then the tension between working people, you know, which is Labor Party's traditional base and this new intellectual class that started to enter in the 60s and are now basically taking it over. And, and Albanese is their representative, isn't he? I mean, what is the voice if it's not another of these sort of progressive... You know, part of the vision of the anointed. This is all what is what it's about nowadays, and the whole climate change thing, of course, is in that same league. And it it it, it hurts it hurts working people. Yeah, yeah. Does. Well, this is emblematic of the theme of today's today's podcast. I've got to say because we're talking a lot about the dramatic changes that have happened in Australia in our lifetime, and it's not until you sort of look back and reflect that you really see it when you when you. Uh, experiencing it in in uh, incremental changes every day, you don't really notice it. But I've got to say, it took another POM, Douglas Murray, to notice it and articulate it brilliantly. And Alan Jones picked up on it and quoted Douglas on his show on Tuesday. Let's have a listen to that. As Douglas Murray, a learned POM, has said, the apologies never stop coming. He said, it's now 15 years since Kevin Rudd as Prime Minister made his apology to the Indigenous peoples of Australia. Has any of the guilt been alleviated since then? Have the sorries washed away any blame? It seems not, he says. But then how could they? Douglas Murray then cites ethicists of the last century who've agreed that an apology can only work when it comes from someone who's done a wrong and is accepted by someone who has been wronged. If it comes from someone who themselves has done no wrong and goes to someone who has not actually been wronged, then the deal's a fraud. As Douglas Murray says, if such an apology is offered and accepted, it's a fraud on both sides. Someone who's done no wrong is pretending to be speaking for the dead and people who've suffered no direct wrong are pretending to be able to accept an apology on behalf of people they didn't know." Unquote. You see, this is the madness that Albanese and co and Langton and Pearson don't seem to understand. As an outsider like Douglas Murray remarks, all this quote doesn't seem to be getting the country anywhere because it never could, unquote. But then the disturbing guts of this issue, which applies to you, my dear viewer, because you're far too courteous. As Douglas Murray argues, quote, one thing that it does do is subdue 
the majority of Australians, the typical Australian, no longer seems to me, says Douglas Murray, to be that striding, sensible, happy-go-lucky figure of old. Oh, Nick, it hurts to hear that, I've got to say, but it's true. Australian mm. culture has changed dramatically in our lifetime. What would you say is causing this? Well, I'm, what's causing it, that's a big question, but, I mean, it's definitely it's definitely true what he says. You know, we'd, we'd lost that reputation. I think even before COVID we were losing it, but during COVID we certainly lost that invitation for, you know, the sort of larrikin... Um, um, free thinking, you know, say what you mean, say, say what you think, you know, in clear language, you know, and th- as epitomised by people like um, Barry Humphreys in his, well, I think both his main characters, mm. uh, but also Paul Hogan. I mean, you know, he achieved great success with Crocodile Dundee around the world, particularly in the States, and, I, and, and that was because it was refreshing to see an, an Australian voice who just cut through the pretensions of both the British and the... Uh, American upper classes. So, yeah, we don't have that anymore, do we? And uh, I think it's a very, very, very pertinent observation by Douglas Murray. He's right. You know, why are we apologising? Let's, let's actually get more. We're being very, very polite about this voice, aren't we? But we have no mm. need to apologise mm. anymore for historical wrongs. We did not commit them. You know, you saw that case recently in the United States at the Supreme Court where they upheld um, the 14th Amendment, which is the colourblind amendment in their constitution, and, and Justice... Uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, who of course himself is, um, you know, grew up in the Jim Crow era in the segregated South, made some really point and points along those lines. He said, he said, um, today's seventeen-year-olds did not live through the Jim Crow era, enact or enforce segregation laws, or take any action to oppress or enslave the victims of the past. They do not shoulder the moral debts of their ancestors, nor should our nation punish today's youth for the sins of the past. Oh, that's spot on, isn't it? You know? Yeah, yeah. But it's become, it's almost become sort of uh, unacceptable these days to talk. You, you said Australians are famous for being, for speaking bluntly and directly. I mean, you know, we are famous for being prosaic talkers and that's often a, a good thing. Mm. But you can't be like that anyway. That art's dying out anyway, isn't it? I yeah, mean, it is, you know, yeah. our... our our friend, we hardly get through a show without mentioning our, our dear departed friend Bill Lee, but he was a master at it, wasn't he? He was. He using yeah. the Australian language and the vernacular as it's developed over the yeah. years, but always know. delivered it with a laugh. He did, you know, and which is the, the Australian way. Yeah. I've got I've got two theories about this, Nick. Well, I've got uh, two observations about the creation of of Australia, which began at the with the colony in New South Wales. Firstly, the convicts and the prison guards began their adventure down here literally in the same boat. <laughs> it was the first <laughs> fleet, right? Well, but once they arrived, they remained interdependent on each other in many ways. Whatever class division existed when they boarded the first fleet were largely discarded during the, vo- during the voyage and afterwards. And a, a lot of emancipated convicts, I only discovered this recently, wound up becoming police officers, for example, because everyone knew that the settlement needed an egalitarian ethos if it was going to survive mm. all this, you know, great distance from European civilization, And that laid the foundation for our largely classless culture and sense of mateship. The other aspect that I'd, I'd observe um, was the need for a can-do attitude. I mean, to, to be dumped in such a hostile land requires enormous pragmatism just to survive. And the first fleet, until the second fleet arrived, I mean, they almost they almost perished. Um, mm. So, you know, the the colony was born of a of a absolute need to survive, be practical, and survive in a hostile um, uh, environment. Now, Nick, I'd argue that both of those characteristics, our can-do attitude and our egalitarianism, remained central to Australian culture until. The 1980s. I yeah. think we witnessed the end of it in the 80s, and since then several things have changed, and not least of them would be our demographic demographic makeup. What do you think? Well, I'm, I don't think we've seen the end of it. We've seen this. We've seen people attempt to end it. There's a certain, there's a class that I write about in my book, the lucky culture, the, the sort of the the presumptive ruling class who think they're better than everybody else. Uh, look down on other people, think they're stupid. I mean, perfectly represented this week, of course, by um, um, 
What's his face? Ray Martin. <laughs> Ray Martin. I've forgotten, his, <laughs> I'd forgotten the miserable yeah. misanthrope's name. But he, yeah. he, you know, by saying, basically declaring you don't vote for the voice, you're, you're, you're a dickhead or a dinosaur. How disrespectful yeah. is that, yeah. you know? Yeah. But that, that didn't, doesn't exist in the country still. I mean, you go to the country Australia, as I spent a lot of time there, love spending time anywhere, you know, more than 10 kilometres from Leichhardt is great. And, and, and it... Um, you, people are still like that. They still treat you like that. They still expect to be treated like that. So it's not died out, but there's a, there is, a, and and you can see with the voice, we do have a popular rebellion on her at the moment, and and they're going to overturn the pretensions of the the ruling class, help, hopefully. But we have to keep fighting it because it's there. People who think they're better than other people, and that's that was always the rule. The rule here was always you're allowed to be better off than your neighbour, but you're not allowed to pretend you're better than your neighbour. And that's, yeah. that's that rule's. Pretty much held. Well, I tell you, there's yeah. a big attack. Where I, I lament on this one, Fred, and I wrote in my book about the act of sitting in the front of a taxi as being an act of great egalitarianism, and that's gone. Well, it's not gone. It's very. It's, it, it, we're fighting to keep it alive. Some of us jumping we in the are. front of Ubers, getting yeah. funny looks. But yeah, yeah. Uber it's drivers not the norm don't like anymore. it. Yeah. No, they don't. It's yeah. not the norm. Well, you know, I'd, I'd hate. I, I'd, you know, you have to say it, but. A lot of Uber drivers don't speak great English anyway, and I think this is this is the this is the problem we have to address, and that is that demographic changes are driving this change in our culture. I think it's undeniable. I mean, it, it, it's no coincidence that the SBS TV service, uh, which encouraged people to um, you know listen to the news in their in the native language of the country from which they emigrated, began. As this cultural uh, sort of um, dissolution began, um, now, but this is the this is the topic of an interview that Alexandra Marshall had on Spectator TV re- recently. Now, here, this is very pertinent to what we've just been talking about. Here, she is talking to Jordan Knight of Immigration Watch. Let's have a listen to that. Immigration has a much bigger impact on Australia then the voice hypothetically will. And the truth is, is that while the voices are hypothetical, mass immigration is changing Australia now. And this debate needs to happen now. We see it all around us in Australia. Like my father, where he grew up in, in Melbourne, I looked at the demographic um, statistics the other day and it's changed to now be 60% foreign born. And he, when he grew up, it was basically 100% Australian. So we're seeing the change uh, around us. And it's not just the change, it's the rate of change. I remember seeing statistics from, I think, New South Wales electoral data, which basically said between the four years of the last election, between the last two elections, there was a 70% change of the foreign-born population in some, some areas. Now, I would say that that is a rapid demographic shift. That is a rapid change of people. Um, and as uh, somebody in the UK, Matthew Goodwin, in his book writes, rapid demographic change. You know, maybe it can be argued that immigration, multiculturalism isn't a bad thing, but rapid demographic change has been shown to lead to, like you say, if not civil conflict, then a lot of other problems, you know, and we're starting to see this play out in Australia now. And why isn't the Liberal Party fighting this fight? Because as uh, as you said, and as I discussed in the piece, the studies have been done that show that overwhelmingly recently arrived migrants will vote for socially democratic parties like Labor. Even Labor-aligned consultants are admitting this. They're bragging about this. And uh, we've seen it as well in the recent, I believe, 2019 election in New South Wales. Of the top 20 um, electorates for foreign-born uh, people, 16 out of the 20 voted uh, for Labor. So the proof is there. You know, Why isn't the Liberal Party talking about it? Maybe they think they can sort of do what Labor is doing and try and win some of these votes. I don't think they can. So I think... You know, they're really going to have to start fighting this fight or, you know, other parties will have to start fighting the fight for them. And if they do, I think the other parties will just do much better, to be honest. Nick, is the Liberal Party doing enough to retain Australian culture amid all this multiculturalism? You can never do enough, can you? But <laughs> look, I think a few points. Number number one, it's not the issue. We should need to be clear. The issue is not immigration itself, right? Immigrate, you know, in 1788, we were 100% overseas borns I, I think that's not a relevant point it's 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 how well you you become part of the place and become part of the culture and and share the the norms and 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 the and the and the responsibilities of citizenship 
and, and I should note here, this is a very interesting um, statistic, Australia has the largest proportion of overseas-born people per head of population of any country in the world, right? Which is which is a, says that we're actually doing something right because we're not Sweden, we're not America. We don't have them pouring across the border in an uncontrolled way. You know, we don't have the problems of of other countries where they've got real racial tension and crime. We're not we're not New Zealand, right? Where they've got crime at the moment, imported crime. Yeah, and we'll get to that at the end. So we're doing something right, but I think it, it you know I think it is the rate of immigration is a key thing in terms of uh, allowing people to integrate and not getting them in large you know ghettos where they don't speak English. That that is a problem and a growing problem. And also the key thing at the moment, of course, is we can't bring in migrants faster than we can build houses, which is yeah. what we're doing. We're yeah. literally bringing in migrants in larger numbers than we're building houses. So that's not going to work, is it? Well, the other the, the other problem, no, that's not, and it, and it's causing you know young Australians who were born here enormous grief, um, and uh, sort of it, it compromises their uh, their sort of um, patriotism as well. I mean, if you can't buy a piece of Australia, why would you um, be patriotic towards it, or heaven forbid, mm. fight to defend it? But I think one of the most um, the other part of this, Nick, other than housing is this ever-growing um, uh, political arm of multiculturalism. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with this one. The Federal Department of Multicultural Affairs has an annual budget of $100 million, and that, that isn't, that's just how it spends its own money. Like refugees, uh, resettling refugees, it comes on top of that, and that's not cheap either. But Where does that money go to? I well, guess there's lots of small little grants to the Croatian and the... Yeah, I, and I guess, the, you the, know, language services... The, Slovak, would... the Slovak, Slovakian Society or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, yeah. It goes to keeping Ukrainians and Russians apart probably. <laughs> um, but people used to migrate here because they wanted to assimilate into our culture. Now hmm. we cough up... $100 million a year to ensure they don't. Now, Nick, you might might have wondered where all this started, and our colleague David Flint can answer that. On Tuesday night, he interviewed Abul Rizvi, who is a deputy, former deputy secretary of the Immigration Department. Now, Rizvi has identified the date when all this really mm. went sour, and that was July 1, 2001. Uh-huh. And that was the day Australia changed forever. And Nick, you'll be alarmed to learn that it was uh, it happened under the under the uh, watchful gaze of Liberal Treasurer Peter Costello and his Shame. immigration Shame. minister <laughs> Philip Ruddock. Let's have a listen to that grab from David Flint's show. Could you explain to us? The point you made in that chapter about how important two thousand and one was. What was that all about? Well, it was predominantly driven by a great deal of debate that was taking place in in around 1999-2000 uh, between Treasury, uh, the Immigration Department, various demographers in Australia and the Productivity Commission, which dragged in um, Peter Costello and Philip Ruddock into the d- discussion about population ageing and what the projections for Australia look like from an ageing perspective. And that worried uh, both Costello and Ruddock a great deal. And it led to some fundamental changes in our immigration policy, which essentially said um, overseas students are potentially a significant export growth industry. But more importantly, where we can get overseas students to study the right courses, they become eventually the ideal migrant, having been uh, uh, having developed their qualifications in Australia and having acquired uh, 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 skills relevant to Australia's needs, they would make the ideal migrants. So on the 1st of July, what we changed was both the way we processed overseas students and the pathway we provided them to permanent residence. This reminds me, Nick, of, uh, of that great, Ronald Reagan quote, you know, the, the nine most fr- most frightening words in the English language is mm. I'm from the government and I'm here to help because this is this, this is the sort of scheme that looks good on a whiteboard in Canberra, in, in Parliament House. But when, when it is implemented in practice, 
it is an absolute disaster. I mean, education is the main way we bring in immigrants to this country now. And back then, 22 years ago, it would have seemed like a win-win in from every angle. You know, we get to, you know, enlist high-fee-paying high students who culturally acclimatise to the country and then settle down here and, uh, and we solve the ageing population process at the same time. But it hasn't turned out that way, has no, it? No, I think with hindsight, Peter Costello will allow you the benefit of hindsight because I think it was the right you know, he did the right work on this with the intergenerational report and identified a real problem, which is that our population would age and our the proportion of people working would grow smaller and the proportion of pensioners and people not working would grow larger. That's the problem they got in Japan, and it is a real problem because they don't have much immigration. But and, and probably immigration is part of the solution to that. You know, the baby bonus had its problems. And, <laughs> you know, there's only so much babies you can produce. So, yeah, I mean, but the, I think they're very clear linking it to linking education and migration was a mistake because it's led to actually a much, much lower quality of migrants than we had hoped because people, they're not all studying rocket science. And Some I saw of them are studying hairdressing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, look, we need hairdressers well, for sure. But I mean, well, but it is a, it is, a, it is. Uh, I looked at these statistics recently. I, I haven't got time to get them out. But if you, there is a higher unemployment rate a year after migration from people that have qualified coming in from dent of being students here and those that have come from other purposes. And that's kind of lopsided, isn't it? Because we expected the students to be so well qualified and brilliant, you know, they'd all be holding down trivia yeah. jobs. Yeah. That's not working. They're all driving no. Ubers. Yeah, well, yeah, all working in 7-Elevens, yeah. To generalisation, right. <laughs> of course. You know, I've got a terrific doctor from Thailand and yeah, well, they're dentist all, from yeah, India. Exactly. So not, I mean, you know, Abul I mean, Rizvi is probably an example. I mean, I don't know when he arrived in Australia. He might have been born here, but he's obviously a product of a of a of an ethnic um, you know group, and um, and good on him. He he sounds like a perfectly uh, um, you know, acclimatised and uh, patriotic Australian who is concerned about mm. immigration. I mean, you do some of the most concerned people about the way we run our immigration policy are immigrants themselves because they came here knowing that the, the country is a great place to be and for some reason the federal government seems to be just uh, um, in a in a very... Uh, haphazard way managing immigration. I mean, he's, a, he's another good example of it. I mean, you, you can enrol in some sort, in a college and, you know, for a hairdressing course or whatever and, and migrate to Australia if, you, if that particular course is deemed um, in demand in Australia. Now, the, the colleges that have sprung up to, um, to cater for that are often just completely bogus. So they bring yeah. in... And and there is a there is actually a federal department whose prime whose sorry whose sole objective is to investigate these colleges and shut them down if they're no good and they shut down dozens of mm. them. I mean it's a, it's quite a scam. Uh, you know, like I said, must have looked great on that whiteboard in Parliament House twenty two years ago, but it's uh, turned out to be quite. Yeah, there's some good. There are some good uh, private colleges. Our, our, our good friend Alan Manley runs an excellent one in Sydney, doing giving a business degree much more efficiently and um, and quickly than a university would do in a better degree. So I love that competition with university be encouraged. But you, they, you, you're right. It is a. It, it is is a. We're not. I have to say, I, I do still contend that we've handled migration better than any comparable country I can think of because and that's self-evident that we don't have well I'd say Nick, that, that's be- it's not perfect and and no. I think labor are in real danger of stuffing it up with these huge quotas oh, well, these massive they, quotas I think they're determined to stuff it up Nick yeah. I think it's part of a plan to be honest I mean that labor import labor voters that's what they do I mean there was a report in the Australian just a couple of months ago about how they have extended covid visas since the since the end of COVID, there's sixty six thousand of them for for people who were. I mean, the COVID visa was a visa for overseas workers to stay in Australia 
because of the lockdowns. Now, whether it's a plan or through stupidity, <laughs> you never well, know with this mob. It's always one or the other, right? Yeah, so yeah. Either some nefarious plan or stupidity. Well, it's, not in not, the, it's not in the national interest. That's that right. Well, I mean, no, they're, they're definitely taking the, the eye off the ball when they are. When you look at Australian culture, this is this is what we've been talking about throughout this podcast. They don't Australia. care, but they devalue it. Yeah, you know, they, yeah. They basically, I mean, in Victoria, I think. Australia Day has basically ceased to exist under Dan Andrews. Yeah, they, yeah. They, 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 no, it should be compulsory. And I still maintain, I've said for a long time, I think it should be an essential qualification, not of getting a visa to come here, but becoming a citizen. I'll give you a bit of time to learn. But you need to be able to shear a sheep. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you think? <laughs> well, you need to be able to surf. Can you surf, mate? No, I can't shoot a sheep <laughs> <Back> either. To- <laughs> <laughs> you probably don't even own Ugg boots. Um, but but speaking of that, because that came up in in uh, David's conversation with Abel Rizvi, let's have a look at Martina. Let's have uh, grab five from the David Flint's show. Is there some official policy to imbue the students with what may be called Australian values? Um, there is no official policy to do that. Um, um, multiculturalism, as defined by Gough Whitlam, as defined by Fraser, uh, didn't require that. What ultimately happens, I think, is that you get a melding of cultures and and uh, the, the aspects of culture that perhaps uh, become most popular are the ones that, that, that we acquire going forward. So uh, we may well end up in a situation where certain aspects of our culture they adopt and certain aspects of their culture we end up adopting. And that's been the nature of immigration for time immemorial. I'd argue, Nick, that it's, it's, all one, it's mostly one way these days. Now, immigrants are not encouraged very mm. much to adopt the aspects of our culture that they like they're just encouraged to form ghettos and uh, quite often not even speak speak English. I just think people did it naturally. I don't think you have to encourage them before. They just liked the place. They yeah. came here because they liked it. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I, some, that's the migrant experience. I'm, I, I know because I've lived it. You come here because you like the place, you like the people, you like the, you like the culture, and you desperately want to be part of it. And you hate it when people say, you know, which part of England you come from, <laughs> even after bloody 30 years here or something, you know. <laughs> Uh, yeah. um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of yeah, but yeah, because you want to be part of it, and I think most migrants still. I meet, I meet them. I, I was at a citizenship ceremony in July, yeah, in um, Australia Day this year in um, in Manjur, in your your oh, old, in Western Australia, yeah, yeah, just lovely little town where where um, uh, Andrew Hastie's the member, local member, was speaking. But it, I spoke to lots of people afterwards. Brings tears to your eyes. You know, they really, really wanted to be Australian. And they, they stand there and they raise their hand in in loyalty. That's the way most of them are. But the 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 elite, you know, our anointed ones, are discouraging that by trying to tell everybody, and especially telling kids in school, that this is a terrible country and with a sinful, you know, shameful past, and we have to apologise for it, and we have to behave like a a, a decent country, you know, like um, I don't, I don't know, Belarus or something, you know. <laughs> Like North Korea. Slovakia. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nick, let's go full circle now and play a bit of an interview I had with Lawrence Fox back in March of this year. Now, I think it's remarkable that the issues we discussed back then, which were central bank digital, digital currencies, 15-minute cities, the despised cameras that record car number plates so their drivers can be charged for having entered, entered certain parts of the cities, and immigration... They, these topics have not changed and we're still talking about them. The only difference might be that, uh, that uh, talking about them too much might land you in the clink, which is what Lawrence found out uh, to his chagrin this week. But here's a grab from our chat where I lament the paucity of options Australian voters have for political change and ask Lawrence, Lawrence Fox how his party, which he founded, the Reclaim Party, in Britain is going. Let's have a listen to that. There's no option anymore in Australia and seemingly in Britain for, uh, you know, political choices to conserve our history and our values and our culture. In Australia, we've got parties like One Nation and the United Australia Party and the Lib Dems. 
but uh, none of them have a film star as their leader, mate. How's the Reclaim Party going, which you lead? Yeah, it's good. I mean, we, we essentially, I try and sort of morph it away from politics because I think what we've got here is a, is a massive cultural problem. And I don't think there's a cultural, uh, a political solution to a cultural problem. So I'm trying to, to draw, not back from politics, but to, to try and use a, a more of a cultural approach, you know, via stuff that we're doing in terms of the bad law project over critical race theory and all of the stuff that's being taught in schools. And we're doing something called bad education. And I'm, I'm trying to work with sound politicians because having hung out with politicians now for the last three years, they are worse than movie business people. They literally are worse. I mean, and that's saying a lot, having worked in show business for 20 years, the vainest bunch of self-involved beeps ever. <laughs> Well, politics is show business for ugly people. Now they're even worse than show business people. What do you reckon? Well, yeah, but to your, your earlier point about, you know, what's the Liberal Party doing to make Australia great again or however you phrase that yeah. question. I mean, Lawrence Fox made, I think, a very true point there that that you, politics is not much good at fixing cultural problems. Mm. You know, politics is downstream of culture. And cultural problems require all of us, you know, to actually stand up for for Australian values and, and do it loudly all the time, even when it's awkward. Not and because this is, Peter Dutton can do it all he likes, but un, unless there's a groundswell behind him and people are going to back him up, uh, I think Trump's like that, right? I mean, Trump is make America great again, um, but he couldn't have done that if there hadn't have been a massive groundswell of support and other people that were prepared to come out and go on Twitter and back him up. But here's the thing, Fred: we got to stop beating up on ourselves. We do. We can win arguments as we are winning, fingers crossed, one week to go, the voice debate. Yeah. I mean, a year ago we thought it was lost. We didn't think we could possibly beat back against the, the woke lines about, you know, standing on the right side of history and, and you know, accepting the gracious hand of, of whatever it was, <laughs> the sweaty palm of yeah. gracious <laughs> friendliness or whatever they we yeah. were being offered by Noel Pearson. And... But, but we, Australians have had the courage to speak out, you know, and it's and I think Jacinta has given us great courage there. You can't call us, you can't call us racist now that Jacinta's out on the same side. My know. hope for Australia is that uh, firstly we um, we kick this this uh, voice idea into the dustbin of history, and then uh, sorry to Peter Dutton if you're listening. Jacinta gets a, uh, a seat in the House of Reps, becomes the leader mm -hmm. of the coalition and becomes our first f Indigenous female Prime Minister. And, uh, you know, I mean, if, if, we, if we do vote against this voice proposition, the usual suspects are going to bleat about what an awful racist country this is. And you and I know, Nick... Most Australians know this is one of the least racist places in the history of the world and, uh, and should Jacinta ever find herself as l leading the coalition into an election, I'd suggest the landslide victory would be absolutely conclusive proof of what a great country Australia it's is. It's a nice dream, isn't it? And yeah. Amanda Stoker would be Premier of Queensland and, you know, it'd be a world would be <laughs> yes. a very happy place. It but, would, yeah. But, yeah. you know, I th yeah. No, and I when think... you say culture is downstream of politics, it made me realise you and I have both spent a bit of time in Parliament House, you have particularly so. You know, one thing you don't you don't really encounter on in the corridors of Parliament House is much Aussie culture. You don't... You know, it's 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 just a bureaucratic sort of um, heaven, but you know, there's not a there's no larrikins there. There's not a lot of joking going on. You don't get the feel. You could be in any parliament house in the world, really, couldn't you? You could, which, which I think. It, but I think there's a craving for it, right? Hence the popularity of the Kingo Kingston Hotel. Oh. <laughs> any giving sitting sitting week. Well, you and I had a, new, a, a hilarious night there once. Um, when, uh, we have many hilarious nights there, most of which we can't remember. But it's an it's an it's an Aussie pub with it crap, is, crap food and yeah, and you can you and can run into ministers and uh, all sorts of MPs anybody that, there. You yeah, know, I mean, the yeah. first um, the first the first the first time I ever went there was back in would have been nineteen ninety six, might have been early ninety seven. Uh, I took Pauline the Pauline Hanson out to dinner. Oh, my what date she, with she Pauline. Have a <laughs> I think she must have done. <laughs> My date with Pauline, I said, where do you want to go? She said, the Kingo. 
Of course, Schnitty and a skewie at the Kingo. But but yeah, that that but I think that that that, that and it's a remarkable thing that that survives that almost completely genuine Aussie pub. Just, yeah, just they what, should have two built or three Parliament. kilometres from Parliament House, but it does. And but it, the fact is, it just serves to illustrate how false and weird Parliament House. Yeah, yeah, they should have built Parliament House around the Kingo. Really, <laughs> <laughs> they should have done, the and they should make Phil be... Thompson. <laughs> well, I suppose he can't be Prime Minister, but he could be Deputy Prime Minister, Phil couldn't Tom- he? Who's he, the licensee? And uh, Phil Thompson, the, the member for Herbert from Townsville, oh, you know, yeah, the, right, the, ex, okay, yeah. the, ex, the guy who basically got blown up and had to be rebuilt in Afghanistan and oh. is now one of the most down-to-earth, genuine, decent politicians, you know, and they are there in Parliament. But They are, they are. Yeah, yeah I can't they, disparage yeah. everyone who works there. There are some decent people in Parliament yeah. House and they're doing a good job for us. Most of them. Now, Nick, Nick, let's go to your chat. This is our last grab of the uh, of the podcast. Let's go to your chat about the other election that's coming up, which is kind of flying under the radar, at least this side of the Tasman. It's the New Zealand election, which will finally, uh, if the bookies are to be believed, see the death of the hated Labor government previously led by the dis- detestably woke Jacinda Ardern, who just happens to now be enjoying a cosy post-political career among her elitist friends at the United Nations. Hmm. Here's a grab from your chat with Oliver Hartwich of the New Zealand Initiative Think Think Tank. Let's have a listen. This government started off by saying that they would like to reduce the prison population. And guess what? That is the only thing in which Labour has succeeded. The prison population is a lot lower these days. Unfortunately, they haven't solved the crime issue. So we have now cases where people accused of murder, convicted murderers, are home on home detention with an ankle bracelet. But they're not in prison. So in a way, Labour's ticking that box. So the prison population is down, but New Zealand hasn't become safer. New Zealand used to be the kind of country where you didn't have to lock your house when you left, where you didn't have to lock your car. And nowadays, actually, you actually wouldn't want to go out at night in downtown Auckland because of fear of being robbed or mucked or shot or stabbed, it is no longer a safe place. And New Zealanders are feeling that. And that's another reason why they're angry with this government. I'd be angry too mm. if you couldn't walk down downtown Auckland. I mean, New Zealand's always had this sort of reputation as a sleepy little place and, uh, you know, eminently safe. Now you can't go out without locking your house or, you know, mm. you've got to lock your car. Nick, what is it about leftist governments and crime? Well, part of that, of course, is what we were talking about earlier. It's it's a, um, a rather sort of badly organised um, immigration program centred around education, and, and that's brought a lot of change into, particularly in Auckland. But yeah, I and mean, what don't they get about this? You know, you reduce the pop prison population <laughs> by putting more criminals on the streets, and then you expect. Crime not to go up, you know. How does that work? There's been all those amusing stories out of the. Oh, I shouldn't say amusing, actually, but there's been those stories out of the US this week. I think there's been four incidents of attacks on leftists in the United States, um, violent attacks. One of them was a Democrat Democrat congressman from Texas who was carjacked in Washington. But the most famous case, of course, um, which you might have seen on social media, was that. Um, Young guy in his in his early thirties, he was waiting for a bus in uh, Brooklyn uh, with his girlfriend after attending a wedding, and uh, a dude walked past um, uh, who was clearly angry about something. There was some sort of altercation. He got stabbed to death. Now that the guy who died was, you know, ticked all the boxes for the Brooklyn wokester. He, you know, he was an advocate for. Um, uh, for you know the liberal policies that uh, under George Soros. Um, prosecutors and uh, and and judges is letting criminals, violent criminals, out on the streets, and he paid for that with his life. Now it's now it's becoming blindingly obvious. Oh, that's another thing, Nick. I just read just before we came in to do the podcast. That guy, some of his friends are saying that he would have felt sorry for the guy who killed him. Of course he was. He was a victim of society. Exactly. Uh, uh, yeah. But this has been going on in the States uh, since the early 60s. Periodically, there's great waves of enlightened policing and whatever, you know, the, don't blame the criminal. He's a victim of society and all that. And um, uh, Thomas Sowell, in, in a couple of his wonderful books, 
does the economic analysis of this. And, and guess what? You know, if you reduce the penalties or the cost of committing a crime, more people do it. You know, you reduce the admission price at your local bowling alley, more people go bowling. If you reduce the, the, the cost or potential cost of crime by lowering, you know, either getting rid of penalties, as they are in Canberra on drugs, for instance, or, or you know, lessening them or going soft, then you increase the amount of crime. It's just statistically, it's just a a, a pattern you can illustrate time and, and an time economic. Again. It's an economic reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and part of the cost of crime is the amount of time you like to spend in jail, or whether you spend any time in jail, right? So it's 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 kind of obvious, isn't it? Yeah. And um, uh, and periodically, they like they did in New York, they'll clamp down on it and they'll reduce crime for a time, and then you go back to the progressive means and you. I just really hope that this this wave of sort of madness towards crime, which you can see in the states, in San Francisco, famously, and you know the subject of that great book by Michael Schellenberger, San Francisco, which now seems to have spread to Auckland. I just hope it stops there. I mean, I wouldn't. You worry about Canberra where they're getting rid of penalties for drugs. Yeah, well, luckily we aren't seeing much of that here. But I think it's this is not entirely unrelated to what we've been talking about earlier, and that is the. The, the, the sort of dilution of cultural affinity, like you can't just create a multicultural society and think that basic laws will, will hold that society together. Society has to be held together by a culture. People have to feel an affinity with strangers in the street. Otherwise, it's going to wind up violence. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the so the strength of the social fabric is is vital, and the government does have an effect on that. And um, you know, top down uh, or governments tend to break the social fabric. And well, so we as have a, to have it. it's coming from the bottom up. People need to feel they're empowered and motivated to be good citizens. Yeah. Well, as a um, as a as a parting final parting shot. I'd like to recommend the book that I've been reading this week. It's called The Anatomy of Fascism by Robert O. Paxton. It's actually quite older. I think it was written about 15 or 20 years ago. But uh, this is relevant to what we've been talking about because it's all about how fascism uh, emerged um, and it, it's, it, it's precisely a cultural phenomenon uh, and it emerged um, 20, 200 years ago or a bit earlier but then became quite a political force in the 30s and 40s, but there's, there's a quote here at the end of World War One, and I quote from The Anatomy of Fascism, Europeans, Nick, were torn between an old world that could not be revived, this is as a result of World War One causing such eruptions in Europe, and the quote goes on, and a new world about which they dis- disagreed bitterly. So that's the world you and I live in now, Nick, and dear listener. Europeans were torn between an old world that could not be revived and a new world about which they disagreed bitterly. I'm going to buy a copy of that book. And let me just throw in my book recommendation of the week, what I'm about three quarters of the way through. Thomas Sowell's new book, The Age of, I think he's 94, isn't he? He's just written his, his 57th book or something. Social Justice Fallacies. It's brilliant and it cuts through much of the nonsense we've been talking about today. Well, that, that's a good note to end on. Thanks for listening. Uh, my name's Fred Paul. I'm here with Nick Cater. We're from ADH TV. You can check us out on ADH.TV. Uh, find all our shows and, uh, and Alan Jones and Mark Stein and David Flint and a whole host of other common sense commentators. I'd like to thank Martina or pressing the buttons in y- the control y- room. Yakriem, Yakriem. <laughs> She's Slovakian. <laughs> to all our Slovakian listeners. Dovidenia. <laughs> <laughs> and to our Australian listeners, this is Fred Paul. See you later.